0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. Jesus confronting the, the, the temptation that so often accompanies us to put our confidence in money and mammon and safety and security. And therefore to worship those things. But the question is, is that what you are worshiping this morning? Or are you worshiping the one true God? How do you know what you're worshiping? What do you do if you're not worshiping God? Think about the thing that you think about the most on any given day. Think about the motives that lead you to make the decisions that you make. Think about the amount of anxiety in your life. All of these things are indicators about what lies at the center of your life. Regardless of where you're at on a Sunday and what theological convictions that you profess to believe, the person or thing that you worship is what you live for, what you work for, even what you are prepared to die for. This morning, Jesus uses an interruption in his teaching to teach his disciples an important lesson about their lives. And as Jesus' disciples today, we need to also hear the same lesson. We, specifically this, we must be on guard against the sin of covetousness maybe you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're you're here and you're not a Christian. This is for you as well. For ultimately, if you have any concern whatsoever to know God or to be known by Him, covetousness will keep you from Him. Covetousness will keep you from the one true God. What we want to see this morning is that reality. We want to see the very sin of covetousness. The sin of covetousness. Notice how the passage opens, following on from what we saw last week, and you can read about in the preceding verses if you weren't here, Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples when we're told that someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, my bro- tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The history tells us it was very common for Jewish people to go to rabbis and ask for help solving family disputes because they were supposed to be teachers of the law. They were supposed to know how to apply the, the wisdom of God's word into the various situations of life. But notice how Jesus responds to this man. He says, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now, one level, that might be surprising because because if we've read the end of Luke's gospel, we know Jesus is the judge and arbiter over all people. But here's the thing. Jesus responds in this way not to be harsh, but because this is not what he's here for in this moment. Jesus is clarifying why he came. One day he will judge everyone who's lived. They will stand before Him and He will judge them according to their sinfulness and whether or not they have found forgiveness in Him. But in this moment, that's not who He is. In this moment, He is the man who is headed towards Jerusalem to die on a cross and become the Savior of the world. There's another reason why He's refusing to engage the sky, and that is He knows the man's heart. But before we ever get into adjudication between these two brothers on who should have what in terms of the father's inheritance, we need to get to the heart of the issue, Jesus says. Think about the situation. This guy's been listening to Jesus. We don't know how long but long enough to have an informed opinion that Jesus is worth seeking for his advice. Jesus is worth seeking for his counsel. Otherwise, why would he be there? Why, why would he ask for help? And we know from what Luke has told us in the last chapter that at this point, that there is a, a massive crowd that's gathered around Jesus. So here's this guy that's been listening to Jesus. All that he's been saying about spiritual things, about life with God, about, about how to deal with our sin. And now he's fighting his way through this crowd and he gets to Jesus and... <laughs> He's got one moment perhaps his entire life to ask the Son of God something. What does he ask him? Can you tell my brother to give me the money that he owes me from our inheritance? What does that say about where that guy is spiritually? It says volumes to us. It shows us right where this guy's heart is. It shows what he is worshiping and what he loves. So Jesus very quickly turns this into a teaching opportunity for his disciples. He turns from that man to them. He says to them, his disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This was the sin of this man's heart. He was one who coveted. And so Jesus looks at him and he tells the disciples, don't be like that man. Don't be like that man and experience that same sin. And in doing so, Jesus shares with them and with us the danger of covetousness. The danger of covetousness. Think about this. This guy's obviously come from a wealthy family, at least that's what we assume. There's an inheritance sizable enough to be divided, but most of the disciples that follow Jesus have very little, yet he uses this guy to warn them about coveting. Why? Because coveting does not have to do with how much you actually have or don't have. Coveting is a problem for very poor people and for very wealthy people and for everybody in between. There's ditches on both sides. So you may be sitting here and say, what does this have to do with me? I don't have anything. I don't have an abundance of possessions to worry about. Or maybe you think, I'm doing fine financially. I don't need anything else, so I'm not in danger of coveting. And Jesus says, no, both of you have a danger of coveting. For there's always the danger of having very little and yet constantly pining away for more. You long to have the things that you don't currently have. On the other hand, there's the the danger of having plenty, but never being content. You're always wanting more, more, more. Enough is never enough few years ago, a Harvard economist named Juliette Shore wrote a book called The Overspent American, and she was seeking to analyze the the reasons for the the, the economic mindset that we have in this country, and among many other interesting things that she found out, she found out that of the households in America that make more than $100,000, only a third of them agree with this statement, quote, I can afford to buy everything I really need. That means two-thirds of all American households making over $100,000 a year feel like they don't make enough money, not just to have a fun lifestyle, not just to get the boat and the extra house, to, to buy the things they really need. That means, she says, quote, the wealthiest people in the wealthiest country in the history of the world believe they can't afford everything they really need. Covetousness can sneak up on us. It can sneak up on you. That's why I've had lots of people come with me and say, God, uh, uh, Pastor, I, I I need help. I need you to I need you to pray with me and to counsel me because I'm having a problem with my marriage. I'm having a problem with pornography. I'm having a problem with anger and hatred and bitterness. I'm having a problem with faithlessness and trusting God. I've never once had a person come up and say, I'm having a problem coveting. Not once. I've never been in a church where someone has said, stood up, please pray for me. I have a problem with coveting. It's something we don't talk about. It's something we don't think about. And yet there it is. This monster of a sin that sneaks up on us. And it's so deadly because it's what we might call a root sin. Or now that marijuana is legal, a gateway sin. It's going to lead to something else. You start coveting, it's going to lead to other things like deception, hatred, anger, unethical deals, even murder. I mean, good night, just watch a rerun of Law and Order. People do not have what they want. They are coveting something and they go out and commit all kinds of sins and break all kinds of laws to do it. It is incipient. It is dangerous. It is deadly. And Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness. Examine your heart and ask yourself where you are here. Unless you still think maybe this is not that big of a deal, Jesus goes on and he warns about the devotion of covetousness. The devotion of covetousness. You know, back in the 80s, Gordon Gecko tried to teach us all that greed is good. The Bible says greed is idolatry. It's the worship of a false god. When you desire what you don't have to the point you feel like you need it, you love it, you want it, you desire it, you crave it, you live for it. You've moved from having a problem with stuff to having a problem with God. You've become an idolater. Stuff has become your God. And so Jesus makes it very clear. Look, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's not what a life is about. Life is not about what we have in terms of stuff. Life is about God. The Bible says that true life, what life was meant to be, is found in knowing the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So when we're coveting, we're being drawn out of that kind of life. We're finding meaning in what we have rather than God. We're worshiping created things rather than the creator. So, the, so, so this is the problem. This is the sin of covetousness that we must be on guard against. The question is, how do you know if that's the sin of your heart? How do you know if that's where you live and breathe each day? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us a parable, and here we see the symptoms of covetousness. The symptoms of covetousness. The parable begins when the land of a rich man produced pen, plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And immediately here we see the first symptom of one who struggles with coveting what they don't have. They are marked by ingratitude. They're marked by ingratitude. Notice how Jesus carefully words the situation. He doesn't say the man worked hard in his field and it produced plentifully. He doesn't even say the servants worked hard in his field and it produced plentifully. He doesn't say the man was wise and his fields produced plentifully. What does he say? The land produced plentifully. Who made the land? Who watered it from the heavens? Who ordained it to be rich in minerals needed to produce plentiful crops? God in heaven. And this man does not give one whit of thought towards that. Not once does he stop and go as a good Jew and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise of the temple. Not once does he even bow the knee or lift up his hands to heaven above and thank God that my crops have produced bountifully because it's come from your hand. No, here's the beginning of his problems. When prosperity comes, his first start honor of God, the source of his blessing, but on himself and his further needs. The result is that he not only fails to give thanks in all things, but suddenly now his wife his life is full of worry and anxiety. That's the second the second symptom of a life of covetousness, anxiety. Anxiety. You can almost at least in my mind when I read this, I can almost imagine him wringing his hands together in verse seventeen. What shall I do? What shall I do? I've nowhere to store my crops. His life is self centered rather than God-centered, and now for, he's now worrying. He's filled with anxiety about this problem of abundancy. How, how, can, how did blessing become a curse in this man's life? It's because he disconnected the source of the blessing from the blessing itself. He disconnected the fact that it came from God, and now for, it's a burden that presents anxiety to him, rather than a thing to be rejoiced in and, thankful, and be thankful for. This prosperity should not have driven him to worry. It shouldn't have been a problem. But it was, again, because his his life was marked by self-centeredness. This is the third symptom of a life of covetousness. Self-centeredness. Listen again to the parable and notice the words that come up more than any other. I'll, I'll, I'll read it emphatically to help you. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my, my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, and be merry. i give you some help. What did you notice? George Harrison should have given him copyright. I, me, me, mine. That's all it's about here. I, me, me, mine. I, me, me, mine. It's completely self-centered. It's all about this guy. So much so, it leads him to selfishness. Don't, don't miss the irony here. He's so driven to get stuff, so consumed with covetousness, he now has no place to put all his stuff. It reminds me of those shows about hoarders, where they buy two and three houses just to keep extra stuff. What are you going to do with all that stuff? Oh, well, what do you need with all this crops? you got to build a whole new thing to store it? Maybe you look at this and say, that's crazy. I, I'm, I'm not like I'm never going to be like that. But think about where his selfishness has led him. Think about, particularly in his day, in his time, the culture in which he's grew up in, the law that he's been taught from his birth as a good Jewish man, what could he have done with his abundance? What I teach and have taught every one of my kids, share. Share. The other day, Ellie was driving with me in the car, and Melinda and I had switched vehicles, and she said to me, she wanted to hear a song, and she wanted to hear the Frozen song, Let It Go. And I told her, that, that's Mommy's song, she has it on her phone, I don't have it, I can't play that for you. And her comment was, we can share. We can share. I said, well, that's right, that's good, we, we can share. This guy's not interested in sharing, though. In poverty, you think it's bad now, it was a huge issue in Jesus' day. Why didn't this guy love his neighbors? Why did he give away some of the harvest? Instead he's worried about this massive building project when he could have said, you know what, I know a lot of poor people down the road, let me go and help them. Let me go share my abundance with them. But he doesn't even think about that. It doesn't even occur to him to do that. Why? Because he's a coveter. His life is consumed with covetousness and he therefore is self-centered. He's thinking of himself as an owner rather than a steward as an owner rather than a steward. That, that is that's a key factor in whether or not you're living as a coveter. Do you see yourself as being entrusted with resources from the hand of God or as one who has accumulated resources by his own hand? His selfishness is a symptom of his problem of covetousness. And Jesus reveals a further symptom in verses 19 through 20. Here we see that this sin is evidenced by foolishness. By foolishness. This is the, the next thing that we see. Notice the plan he comes up with. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, uh, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, when I read that, I cannot help but hear people that say, you know what, by the time I'm 50, I'm going to have this car. This is the car I want. But by the time I retire, I'm going to have this cabin, or I'm going to have this boat, or I'm going to do this. You just fill in the blank with whatever you're familiar with, and that's the attitude that we have. I'm working towards this, where then I can just take it easy. I can coast, and we'll have this nice lifestyle. This guy has his golden years all wrapped, mapped out in terms of wine, women, and song. But notice, right at the moment of his triumph, his, he, he's spoken to his soul. His soul has answered back, and he has this glorious idea with what to do with all this stuff. God says to him, you're a fool. You are a complete and utter fool because tonight, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? What's going to matter to you? Who's going to get all your stuff that were required, interestingly enough? Jesus knows what he's doing here. It's from the world of banking. And it's the kind of word you would use when a a debt collector would come to collect the, the loan debt. Jesus is saying here none of us actually owns our lives your life does not belong to you it belongs to the God who gave it to you the God who created you the God who formed you in your mother's womb and gave you life and a soul that reflects his and now just as with all of us God has come to collect on that loan from this man why was he so foolish was it wrong to plan for the future is that what Jesus is saying here just live for the day and don't set aside anything for the, for, for the future or in case that there's a problem or something. No, no, no. That's not the point. In fact, Proverbs has all kinds of things about how to wisely steward your, your money. But the point in Proverbs and the point here is it has to be done with reference to God. All of your planning for the future has to be done in reference to God. And this man has built his life around the assumption that he is the master of his own fate, that his life is all about his own wealth, and that his years will go on indefinitely. He's given no thought about God. It's, in fact, a worldview that, though he is steeped in thoughts of God and in talking about God and in worship of God, actually only gives lip service to God. And yet, who is he? God is the one who has numbered our days and holds our very lives in his hand. And so, Psalm 14 says very clearly, the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. This man may have said it with his lips. There is one true God, the Lord of Israel, but his life betrays him. He's driven by a heart, and in that heart, in the deepest parts of who he really is, he gives God no account of his life. In in the daily day planning, there's no reflection on what God would have of me, what is going to please him. He lives as if there is no God. And that leads us to the final symptom of covetousness, poverty. Poverty. When I was in college, one of the biggest hits on the radio, for me at least, was the most annoying. This scratchy voice singer pondered life and only conclusion was, isn't it ironic? The only ironic thing about that song, though, is that all the examples she cited were not irony. Irony. There's nothing ironic there. You call it bad circumstances, unfortunate events, or, or bad luck. There's no irony in any of the things, any of the examples she gave. So it just annoyed the snot out of me as a English-lit grammarian lover. I thought, no, it's not ironic. But Jesus knows what real irony is here. And here's what he says, though he has laid up treasures for himself here, he has missed out on the one true most important treasure. This man is sitting drinking his mint julep or his diet coke or whatever it is that makes him relax and he thinks, I am at the top of the world, I'm getting ready to build this whole new barn, it's going to be great, I'm going to have all this abundance place to put my storage and my wealth and my possessions and I'm just going to have a great old time and God says, no, no, you're about to. To meet me. And when it comes to my relationship with you, you're the poorest man on earth. You are not rich in the things of God. You are not rich towards God, though you have earthly treasures. He missed out on the most important thing in life, knowing God. And therefore, he's the poorest kind of man there is. The irony is so, so deep, so obvious that it should make us short with laughter if it weren't so heartbreaking. Here's a man that, 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 we don't know, maybe he started out as a hard worker. Jesus doesn't give us the, the details, but but you can put all kinds of people in, that you know in, into your own mind there. Think about someone who has worked hard, who has labor hard, or perhaps they never labor. They had a massive inheritance, but, but but they enjoy all of this wealth. That they, they take pleasure in in all of their possessions. I just read of one retired basketball player who spends $1,000 a week on mobile apps. What are you doing in those mobile apps? $1,000 a week. I couldn't waste that much money. But here's the thing. They're completely impoverished because they don't know God. They don't know God. So what do we do? First of all, we stop and say, is that us? Does that describe my life? As much as we may not want it to, is that what I look like? If I were to be honest with myself when I look in the mirror, if my soul and my heart were laid open, is that me? Is that me? Foolish, anxious, self-centered person who just thinks about their money and their possessions and their wealth and... And very little reference to God. Jesus has given us a warning and painted a picture in high-def clarity about what a life filled with covetousness looks like. Have we seen ourselves in that parable? And if we do, how do we change? If we don't want to be a covetous person, if we want to have a life that is different, if we want to perhaps preemptively avoid that sin, what do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. You'll notice the therefore in verse 22. Jesus takes the parable. He takes this warning. And now he says, here's what you do about it. This is what the sin of covetousness looks like. Therefore, this is how you live. And so the last thing that we see is the solution to covetousness this morning. The solution to covetousness. After all that he said in this parable, he says, now here's what you do. I tell you, verse 22, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. The life driven by coveting is a life of anxiety because you're always worried about what's happening to your stuff you have or how you're going to get the stuff that you don't have. And Jesus says, you don't worry about those things if you're my disciples. Life is not about stuff. Life is not the accumulation of things. It's about more than food and clothing. And if you don't get that, your life is just going to be filled with anxiety. So Jesus says, instead, put to death the sin of covetousness in your heart by first seeking God's kingdom. First seeking God's kingdom. This is how you sever the root of greed and coveting. You seek God's kingdom. This is, what it, this is what he says in verse 31. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? First of all, it means living for something beyond ourselves. It means living for something eternal, something God-centered. But it's more than just a general disposition. It's a way of life that seeks the saving reign of God in every area of our lives, and the lives of others. It's not just about me when we seek God's kingdom. It's about everyone being a part of God's kingdom. It's about seeking the death of our sinful desires and the passing away of all the vain things that we hold on to so tightly. We're seeking God that He might do a work of change in ourselves and others in decisive ways that the evidence of His saving reign might be obvious to all. I'm not the man I once was. I'm not the woman I once was. That's what we're seeking after. We're seeking His reign, His kingship over all things. And notice this is something that must be sought That's the key verb there. Seek after this kingdom of God. It isn't something that comes naturally to us. Because all of us have naturally put a crown on our head and said, I'm the king. I'm the ruler. I am the one calling the shots over my life. But what Jesus is calling us to is to pull that crown off our inflated head that is wedged down on And to throw it at Jesus' feet and yield ourselves to his kingship. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we actually start trying to do that, if we start trying to seek the kingdom, then what we're going to see when we pull that crown off our head is not some gleaming diadem, but a tarnished, cobbled-together old piece of tin that deserves to be in the trash heap. It's something worse than what you get at Burger King in that cardboard giveaway. It's not just a toy, it's the crown of an imposter. And when we do that, then we will turn and we should more closely look at the crown that Jesus has upon his head. And again, we might find something that we already know, but can once again be wondrous and surprising for us. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Indiana Jones movies, they get a lot of stuff wrong in terms of theology, but at the end of the third movie uh, the main character indy is confronted with having to choose this mythical holy grail which as a side doesn't exist all right so so it's all fiction at this point but he's in this room and there's like uh, you know 500 different kinds of cups and chalices some are gold some are encrusted with with jewels and he's looking around and he knows if i if i don't pick the wrong one i'm a dead man my dad's a dead man i got to pick the the right one and eventually he reaches over and, and down, kind of where you couldn't even see it before, he pulls up this old gray cup and he says, here's the cup of a carpenter. The, the, the other guy who's wanting wealth and fame and glory, he's looking for the cup that represents the Son of God, the, the most glorious cup you can have there. But Jones knows that's not who Jesus was in this life. And so when we look to the crown that Jesus wears, what we see is not just this massive, glorious diadem of some tyrant whose boot is on the world. What we see is a twisted, gnarled crown of thorns driven down on his head and scars on his brow where blood once dripped for the salvation of sinners. And when we're reminded of that kind of gracious act of love, that kind of humility and servanthood seen in our king, it will be no great thing to take the piece of garbage that we've tried to put on our head and rule our lives and cast it at his feet and say, No more. No more. I delight and rejoice to follow you as my king. For you gave up your own life that I might be made right with God, that my sins might be washed clean, that I might be forgiven and have no debt of sin towards the Father anymore. The King who reigns is also the Savior who deserves our worship. This was the cost of our redemption, the blood of Christ. And when we continue to stare at that, to gaze at that, to marvel at that, then that grace will make all the more silly and terrible our attempts to rebel against that king, that gracious savior, by putting a false crown atop our own heads. Would we destroy the idolatry of covetousness in our hearts? Then we must seek God's kingdom. And as we do, we can secondly trust God's care. We can trust God's care. Like his father before him, Jesus likes to give commands with a promise. In other words, he says, do this, and here's an assurance that if you do it, it will go well for you. And he says, when this path of obedience looks difficult, when seeking my kingdom looks like it's a hard thing to do, remember, God will take care of you. Why can we see God's kingdom? Why can we seek it with joyful abandon, free from anxiety about this life? Because God will take care of you. If you are his people, you can trust him. And Jesus gives us three reasons for this trust. First, he says, you should trust God's care by what you see in nature. Jesus says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And then in verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says, think about the ways that God cares for the lowliest of creatures. How he arrays the meanest of plants with his glory. He's already set the example as a caring God. Not just in creation, but now how much more for his children. As a father will he not care for you? You are the crown of his creation, his very image bearer. And so secondly, he goes on to say then, you should trust God's care because anxiety is futile. He says, look, let's just get practical for a minute. Anxiety is not good for you. It doesn't work. Isn't that what he says? Which of you, verse 25, being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He says, look, if you can't add more time to your life by worrying, Then why are you worried about anything? If you can't even if you can't even change the course of your life by worry, then what's the point? What's the point? What, What what benefit is it to you? Jesus says worrying and being anxious doesn't actually change anything. You're just wasting the life that you have. Instead, trust God. Trust God. Finally, you should seek you should trust God rather because He is your Father. Verse twenty nine, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, or be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows what you need. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus says, Look, all these pagans running around cutting themselves and doing all kind of unmentionable things, trying to worship people like Zeus and, uh, and, and Apollo and, and Hermes and Diana and all these false gods all over the place. Guess what? Guess what? They're doing that because they know that those pagan gods are stingy and holding out blessings. And they're running around anxious and fearful, hoping a lightning bolt won't fall on them, and maybe their calf will have another baby when it grows up. He says, you don't need to be like that. You have a father in heaven. The one true God is your father in Christ, and he knows what you need. He knows your every need, and He is going to take care of you. When you are running away from Him and seeking your own kingdom and your own glory, you're only going to run into trouble. But if you are seeking His kingdom, then He will provide for your needs. Maybe not be your wants. Maybe not be your wish list that you send up to Him like a divine Santa Claus, but He will take care of your needs. And usually He even goes beyond that. When we trust Him, it circumvents coveting in our hearts. Finally, we can overcome coveting if we seek God's kingdom, if we trust God's care, and if we treasure God's glory. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Notice that last verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus is saying the way to get your heart to be selling the right things is to treasure the right things. So when you treasure God above all else, then anything else that you that you have or hold on to is is done so loosely. If God is the most important thing in your life, if he is your treasure, everything else is is expendable. Everything else, no problem to give away. Everything else, no problem to be done with. It's easy to be generous when God is your treasure and not your stuff. It's very easy to be able to to give away money and time and resources. When that's not not your God. That's not your treasure. It's not what you're pining after and working for and living for. Now, in all this is important, we also understand Jesus is saying wealth's not bad. He's not saying don't be wealthy. He's not saying always be poor. What he's saying is you must spend your money in such a way that it's clear you don't feel at home here. You're not setting up shop. You're not establishing your kingdom as if you're going to live on forever and ever and ever. No, you can say I'm only here for a short while and then I'm going to my real home with my heavenly father. You must make sure, that in the midst of whatever God has blessed you with, it doesn't become your treasure. You simply, you simply become a steward of it. We glorify God with our money when we spend our money in ways that show that God is our treasure. Think about the example of Blaise Pascal. Some of you that are in school or have been in school recently will recognize him as a mathematician who excelled in geometry. In fact, he showed such a deep display of geometry when he was simply 12 years old, though he had never actually been trained in it, that his training and skill was advanced through school, and eventually he came to write all kinds of useful works on math and even experimental physics. But more important than all that, Pascal was a devoted Christian. He wrote books on grace, the life of Christ, as well as other Christian works. And his love for God drove him to love the poor. As Pascal got older, he increasingly deprived himself so that he could give more of his things away. He sold his coaches and his horses, his fine furniture and his silverware, even his library in order that he might give to the poor. And and someone challenged him on this. They said, Pascal, why are you doing this? Why are you giving all of your stuff away? And here's what he said. He says, I love poverty because Christ loved it. I like wealth because it gives me a means to assist the needy. In Pascal, we have a right view of finances, of possessions, of wealth. He knew what it meant not to to store his treasure here, but to send it on to heaven. To use his money to the glory of God. Putting your money in heaven, sending it on ahead of you means we don't hoard it now. We we invest in the work of the kingdom. The Bible is replete. It's just filled with instructions. For giving away the money that God has given to you. For giving to the poor, giving to the church, giving to, to missionaries who work for God. That's why God gives us an abundance. He gives us more than we need it so that we can give above and beyond what we need out of our abundance to alleviate spiritual and physical misery. Enough for us and abundance for others. Which is why I think John Piper is exactly right when he says this. The issue is not how much a person makes Big industry and big salaries are a fact of our times, and they're not even necessarily evil. The evils in being deceived into thinking a thousand dollar salary must be accompanied by a uh, excuse me a hundred thousand dollar salary must be accompanied by a hundred thousand dollar lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of His grace. The dangers in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold it shouldn't. Copper will do. Copper will do. All of us, as we stand back. And taking what Jesus is saying here, all of us have the destructive, even soul-damning seeds of covetousness in our own hearts. Some of us have already a slight infection. We, we feel the draw of the world in our thinking and in our feeling and in how we live and decisions that we make. Some of us are all the way at stage four. Our life is consumed with covetousness. But wherever we're at, the treatment is the same. Massive doses of the gospel of Christ. For there we find a Savior so glorious and so precious that everything else pales in comparison to Him. Father, we are so thankful for Your Son who who came into this world and he gave his life for sinners like us, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, that in the glory of the grace and the mercy shown to us there, that we will find that everything in this world pales in comparison, that he alone should be the object of our, of our greatest treasure and desire, so that everything else will fall into its appropriate place of priority. God, help us not to love things. Help us to love you and the Son that you gave. God, do this as you continually change us by your Spirit and your Word. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.